You guys, it's uh, normally intimidating enough to preach in front of you, but today with Fort City royalty in the room, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. <clears throat> you know, one of the things that uh, I've had to come to terms with in my life is that I am significantly shorter than my wife, Adrian. Uh, Adrian is six foot two, and I'm five foot nine-ish. Uh, it's never actually really bothered me that much that Adrian is taller than me. I mean, at our wedding, uh, our first dance, I put my head on her shoulder. <laughs> And people laughed and laughed and laughed. And, uh, but it doesn't bother me that much. You know, it is nice to have somebody around the house who can change the light bulbs and reach things on the top shelf for me. Uh, but last year, something happened that I'm still not quite used to. My 13-year-old son, Justice, became taller than me. Uh, not only is he taller than me, but he is stronger than me. Not only is he stronger than me, he is cooler than me. Uh, I mean, when I was in high school, I was clicking my heels in musical theater, and just last week, Justice and his team won the first football championship in Ravens Bantam history, right? He is very much cooler than I am, or ever will be. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, uh, he, it was late at night, and uh, he, I was up still, and he got up to use the bathroom, and he didn't know I was there. And so while I was in the bathroom, I snuck into his room uh, to scare him, you know, like dads do. And uh, he came back in, and, and I jumped out of the dark, and I was like, boo! And he just, he went, get out of here, dad. And I was like, <laughs> don't, don't hurt me. So the, things have changed in my household a little bit. And as he's get, get gotten older, one of the things that was important to me uh, as we approached Remembrance Day this year was to help him to understand uh, what was accomplished in those first two world wars. Uh, that men and women uh, gave their lives overseas uh, in many ways buying the Western freedom that we so enjoy even today. And so, uh, although it was quite violent and serious, uh, I sat down with him and I watched Saving Private Ryan with him. It's very graphic, but I wanted him to, to begin to understand our history a little bit, right? And the sacrifices that were made for us. And, and you'll know the movie. Adrian told me I shouldn't tell you about the movie because of spoilers. The movie's like 30 years old. So I'm going to tell you, no, I'm telling you spoilers. If you haven't seen it yet, there's nothing I can do to, 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 to prevent you from, from, it's your fault, not my fault. Uh, the movie's based on a true story, and it's this true story of these four brothers who go overseas to the World War II, uh, and three of these brothers die, and one of them uh, is still alive. And, and the army decides, the military decides that this mother of these four sons has sacrificed enough, right? And so they send in a squad of eight men uh, behind European war lines to rescue the last son of this family, Private Ryan. And over the course of the movie, all eight people in the squad sent to rescue Ryan end up giving their lives, rescuing him. And in fact, at the very end, the very last scene uh, is Tom Hanks, America's dad. Uh, he's, he's, he's the captain, and it's Tom Hanks looking up at Ryan in the last scene, and knowing that all the squad members have given their life to, to rescue Ryan, he looks at him and he says just some simple words. He says, earn this. Earn it. 
He looks at Ryan and he's basically saying, we gave our lives for you. Make it worth it. And then the scene flashes forward and, and now saving Private Ryan, or Private Ryan is an old man surrounded by his family and grandchildren. And there's a scene with him at a military cemetery and he's on his knees before uh, a, a, a grave site and he's crying and he's saying to the, his friend, his lost long friend, I tried my best to live a life worthy of the sacrifice that you made for me. I tried to be a good man. And it's a powerful scene uh, that kind of brings, it does, it brings tears to my eyes every time I've seen it. And it's a powerful idea, right? Earn this. The gift that you have been given, the sacrifices that were made for you, earn it. Do something valuable with it. And the truth is so much of our world is built on this very simple premise that you can work hard enough to earn what you deserve. And in many ways, our society is built off of this performance-based model. You can do what you need to do to earn value, to earn respect, to deserve what you have. If you do this, then you deserve this. And if you're a parent, you, like, you've just done this by accident, probably. Uh, when your kids were young, right, you taught them you know, that if they obey, if they're respectful, they gain privileges, right? Uh, and then if they don't obey or if they're disrespectful, they lose privileges, privileges right? Like it's a performance-based system. How you act determines how you will be received or treated. Or if you think about when you were in school, right? Whether you were uh, in elementary or in university, right? You're literally given a grade on your performance. Your performance decides whether you advance to the next grade or get that diploma or degree that you're working on. You're, it's a performance-based System And then we all know this, if you work somewhere, that once a year you go into your supervisor's office and you sit in a chair and they literally review your performance. And either you get a raise or a bonus based on your performance. It's a performance-based system. And it's everywhere. It permeates all parts of our lives because it just comes naturally to us. And the truth is, it's even found its way into many, uh, most modern religions, right? You've heard of karma, right? We've heard of karma. It's a, a kind of a mainstay of many Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, right? You, so if you do good, the universe will reward you with good things. If you do bad, the universe will punish you with bad things. If you put good energy into the universe, you will receive good energy back. It's just a performance-based system. Or there's Islam, right? If you're a Muslim and you believe in Muhammad's words and you do good deeds and Allah wills it, you will be rewarded for the good things that you've done in your life by spending eternity in paradise. It's a performance-based system. And even ancient Judaism, like we talked about last week, was a very performance-based system. They had this complex set of laws that was very difficult for them to follow. Just one example of those laws was they weren't allowed to wear clothes that were of mixed cloths, mixed textures, right? And so our polyester blends that are so common nowadays, they get you in trouble, right? Back then, don't even get them started on Lululemon. That stuff was witchcraft, not allowed back then. But they had all these rules to follow, and you had to, follow, you had to perform to be good enough for God. 
And if you weren't good enough, they had this elaborate performance of the system where you could sacrifice an animal and, and become right with God. It was a performance-based system. Our culture and the modern religions of the world are performance-based systems. What you do, how you act, determine whether you are right with God or Allah or the universe or, or whatever brand you choose. And so the question I want to talk about today was, I want to ask this question, what did Jesus teach? Was Jesus promoting a performance-based faith? Now this, I believe, is an issue that Jesus chose to tackle in his very first public sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It happened on a hill. We're not creative. It was the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we remember this very first public sermon. And a whole crowd had gathered on the hillside that day to hear Jesus preach. Now, Matthew and Luke both recorded parts of this famous sermon, but we're going to look at Matthew's account today. Matthew was one of Jesus' earliest followers. He was there to hear the sermon uh, from Jesus directly with his own ears. And so Jesus begins this famous Sermon on the Mount by addressing, I believe, the performance-based system that he was born into. All the hundreds of laws designed, the law of Moses designed to keep them and to help them to be right with God. This is what he says. It's a big section, but I'm going to read it all because I think it's important. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on, and this is the hard part. He says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been incredibly discouraging to hear for anybody sitting on that hillside that day. The Pharisees that Jesus is talking about, they are the ones whose job it is to literally uphold the law of Moses. It's their full-time gig. They prided themselves on being rule keepers. And Jesus, you know, for the average person to hear Jesus say, like, here's the Pharisees, they're this good. Even if you're this good, you're not good enough. It's higher than even the Pharisees can reach. What everyone heard on that hillside that day, it was clear to them that none of them met the standard of the law of Moses to be right with God. And Jesus didn't stop there. It, it got worse. He said, you may have heard our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. I, guys, I know this one's easy for most of us not to murder, right? We're pretty good at that one. But don't get angry at anybody. Don't curse anybody. 
I mean, I've been cut off in traffic before, right? I bet you have too. It comes out. Jesus took the standard, don't murder, that everyone was trying to achieve here, and he raised it up to here. He went on in this Sermon on the Mount. He said, I know you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say... Anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery in his heart. See, the standard was here. Don't commit adultery. And Jesus raised it impossibly high to here. And he goes on. You have heard it say it's okay for a, a man to divorce his wife if he gives her a written notice. But he says, but I say, no, there's no way for divorced people to continue to be faithful in future relationships. The standard was here. But Jesus is saying it's, now it's up here. And he's not done. He said, he said, you've heard it said that the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them your left. The standard was here. And now it's up here. And then lastly, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus said, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The standard was here. And Jesus raises it impossibly high to here. What is Jesus doing in this sermon? He's certainly not making his audience feel warm and fuzzy inside. It reminds me of a story that Adrian tells about her grandma. Um, she is, was a formidable woman. Uh, she was the first woman in the state of Illinois to go to university, right? So this is the kind of trailblazing woman she was, and she had high expectations for her families and for family. And Adrian, as a toddler, uh, would go over to spend time with her grandma, and her grandma had this rule that if you wanted something to eat, you had to be able to spell it. And this is where Adrian in this story normally says, guys, as a toddler, cereal is a really hard word to spell. You know, her grandma had high standards, high standards, higher standards for her family than she had for anyone else. And in this Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has done is raise the standard impossibly high so that no one could hear his words and say, oh, I'm good enough. I meet that standard. Nobody on the hillside that day could say, I'm good enough. Just take a moment to imagine how they were feeling, right? Hopefully you're not feeling that way right now in my message. Jesus just finished saying that no part of the law will disappear until he, he deems it so. No part of the law will be disappeared. And that nobody there, not even the Pharisees, not the best among them, not the worst among them, none of them met that standard. They probably were thinking, well, Jesus, if even the Pharisees aren't good enough, then I must be doomed, right? To which Jesus might have replied, exactly. That's exactly the point. You are doomed. No one is good enough. No one can achieve the standard of righteousness that is required of them. Nobody can pile up enough good deeds to earn a right standing with God. You can't just earn it. 
Later on, Paul would echo these words of Jesus when he would write to the church in Rome, and he said, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And then later on, he quotes from the Old Testament saying, no one is righteous, not even one. These are definitive statements. Just think about this for a second. In Jesus' very first public sermon, one of the very first things he does is begin to dismantle the pervasive performance-based ethics of their faith. And the best way that he considered to do this was to tell them, none of you can even measure up to the standard. Now, I remember when I was a kid and I was sitting in this room listening to Pastor Jim preach and I remember looking up at him preaching and thinking, man, I bet he is perfect. I bet you he never sins. I bet you he's right with God. And now, 20 years later, I'm standing on the stage in his spot and I know that is just not true, okay? I am not good enough. Doug is not good enough. Jim was not good enough. Adrian's the closest among us, but even Adrian is not good enough. The standard is all the way up here. And we're all somewhere down here. After the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spent his ministry constantly challenging what people believed about what it meant to be right with God. And instead of spending his time with the religious elite, the ones who felt like they met the standard required, Jesus spent his time with outcasts and undesirables, people society deemed not good enough. And he chose simple tradesmen to be his closest friends and his disciples. Even his good friend Mary was a woman with a tarnished history. And he loved, Jesus loved the unlovable and he gave his time to the forgotten and he healed the broken and he forgave sinners and he put his hands on the lepers and he ate with tax collectors. His way of life offended the people who thought they were good enough. His way of life offended those who had built their power on the backs of a performance-based faith. And they hated Jesus for it. They couldn't let him bring that system crumbling to the ground. And so you know the story. They devised a plan to have him arrested on trumped-up charges. And they had convinced Rome that he was a troublemaker and someone they should get rid of. And they beat him and they spit on him. They walked him up a hill and they nailed him to a cross where he slowly died. You know, I used to say that Jesus was murdered. But every time I've said that, every time I've preached that, that was actually wrong. That's not what happened. Jesus' life wasn't ripped from him by force. It wasn't stolen from him. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He gave his life as a sacrifice for us. Jesus willingly chose to endure the cross. He didn't have to die. He chose it. And only Jesus was good enough. Only Jesus 
met the requirements, the impossibly high standards of the law. And knowing that we could never measure up, knowing that we could never achieve that standard ourselves, and loving us so much, Jesus made us an offer, an offer to share in his righteousness, an offer to share in his goodness. And we aren't made right with God because of anything we do. We can only be made right with God because of what Jesus did. The perfect Lamb of God who gave his life for his friends so that whoever believes in him would spend eternity with him. Jesus dismantled performance-based faith and he replaced it with a new system of grace-based faith. Salvation is his gift to us something we could never earn, something we could never deserve, something we could never pile up enough good deeds to call our own. The life Jesus offers each one of us is a gift of grace received only by faith. And this is what Paul said when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. He said, simply, this is so good, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. When you believed, not when you were good enough, not when you had everything figured out, not when you had all your crap together, not when you had enough good deeds, when you believed. And it feels so simple, right? It feels so simple, too simple. So simple that we continue going back to the performance-based system. We continue trying to earn each other's love and the affection of God. We continue going up that performance-based hill when it is at its core. We can be right with God by grace alone, through faith alone. We don't we're not able to earn it, and we're not good enough. But we believe Jesus is good enough. Paul said to the church in Corinth, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And you guys, we've spent the last few weeks in this Reset Your Mind series. And each week we've tried to challenge your thinking, a way you've approached your life, a way you've approached your faith, and try to get you to look at it from a different perspective. And this is the last message in our Reset Your Mind series. And it's our final challenge, and it's a simple one. We know that our performance-based ways have infiltrated almost every area of our life. Our parenting, our schools, our workplaces, this is the challenge. Don't let it infiltrate your faith. And I said it last week, and I'm going to say it again this week, and I guarantee you I'll say it again another time. The issue of your value was settled at the cross. Jesus gave his life as a gift to you, whether you would accept it or not. He gave you a choice because he loves you. And that if you choose to follow him, 
if you choose to believe him, then his good enough becomes your good enough. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you this morning for this group of people in this room. And I pray for those of us this morning who have arrived at this place at this time thinking that we are just so lost without you or desperate for some sort of life that we don't know. And Jesus, this morning I pray that those people in this room who don't know you, who have never made a decision to follow you, would discover that all the rest of us in this room sitting alongside them, we know we're not good enough. That we're all in the same boat. And that only by accepting your good enough can we be made right with you. And so Jesus, I pray that you will be drawing hearts to yourself in this very moment. And for those of us who have decided to follow you this morning, Jesus, and, and, and who have followed you for a long time, I pray that anywhere where performance-based faith has snuck into our lives, that you would remind us of just how much you love us, that we would stop striving, that we would continue to live good lives, but we would know it is not because of our good lives that you love us, that you love us, that while we were still sinners, you chose to die for us, that you loved us even then. Jesus, I just pray all across this room that you would bless these people, that your grace would be fresh and new to them as they walk out of this place today. I thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, amen.